Um, The reading today comes from Galatians 1, verses 6 through 9. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. See. Well, City Church, as you just heard, we are continuing on in our journey through Galatians. Um, I know it's not... Uh, normal to have the same person leading our liturgy is also the one preaching, but uh, I'm the only elder here today, uh, so you're stuck with me. Um, if you were here last week, we started the book of Galatians, and we went through the first five verses. And what we came away with was the, uh, the idea that this book is about freedom. This book is a book about Christian liberty, which is why we are calling this series Freed by Faith. And that's what Galatians is is about. Uh, It is about faith in Jesus and how that sets you free. But what is freedom? You talk a lot about it, but what is it? Chris was clear last week that freedom is not doing whatever you want. It's often how we think about it. I'm free to do what I want. That is not true. Freedom is not doing what you want. Many of the things people use their freedom to do could very easily be done inside a prison cell. That isn't freedom. That's a false view. In the Declaration of Independence, our founders gave us an understanding of what freedom is meant to look like. In the last paragraph of the Declaration, it says, Free and independent states have full power to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, and do all other acts and things which independent states may of right do. And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Our founders knew that freedom came by divine providence. Divine providence, that's God. Uh, And it required a mutual pledge, an oath. And so they pledged to each other their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor. That does not sound like doing whatever you want. Freedom, as the founders understood it, required a lot of responsibility. It included responsibilities, again, like war and peace, alliances, commerce. Those things are not easy to do. But they are the responsibility of freed people. And that is what we are after. The church is meant to be a distinctly free culture and institution. It is its own government that God established to exist alongside earthly governments, but they are not the same. Earthly governments wage war with earthly weapons. The spiritual government of the church wages spiritual war, but it is no less a type of war. We also bring peace. We bring peace in the name of Jesus. We also form alliances between brothers and sisters, people who did not know each other came into these doors either today for the first time or sometime in the past, and they got to know each other, and they found people that they wanted to pledge their lives to. 
Suddenly we have people, like Zane mentioned earlier, who are kind and generous to each other, who will sacrifice for each other. Those are alliances. We also uh, establish commerce. We do various jobs. We uh, perhaps own various businesses. But we do that as Christians. The church is a government, and today we are going to see how Paul, this founding father of the church, uh, responds when people start breaking their oaths. We'll see how he responds when spies creep in to disrupt the freedom that exists within the church. We're going to see what happens when Paul gets angry. Now, the Apostle Paul wrote most of the letters in the New Testament. And in every single letter that he wrote to the churches, he starts them in almost the same way. He starts off by identifying himself. Paul, I'm an apostle, called by the will of God. He then greets the church to the church that is in Corinth or Ephesus or something. Uh, he usually then pronounces grace and peace to that church. And then he gives thanks for the church. Sometimes, two times, he uh, pronounces a blessing. So it's blessing or thanksgiving. Uh, he does that to every single church that he writes to except Galatians. He does not start with thanks or with blessing to the Galatians. He starts with cursing. Uh, he starts with, I cannot believe you're turning away. And those who are leading you astray, let them be cursed. So this is very uncharacteristic of Paul. It's obviously very serious. Think of it this way. Have you ever been to a restaurant or someplace that provided you a service and had an awful experience? Just the worst service. I'm assuming the answer is yes to that. If not, then Praise God. Uh, I have. Uh, my wife and I recently uh, went out on a date. We went to a nice place. Uh, and our service was awful. Uh, it's a place we've been to many times. And yet the service was terrible. And so my wife did something she had never done before. She wrote her first review. <laughs> I don't know if any of you have done that. Normally when I have a bad experience, what happens is I go into my head and start typing the review there. But I never actually get it online. Uh, this one was special enough, we'll say, that it warranted an online response. Now, uh, we are not fans of cancel culture, so she was not trying to blast them or, like, get them shut down or something. She actually wanted to help them because, again, we like the restaurant. And so she was, she was very gracious, but said, you know, something significant has changed here. Um, we've been here many times, but the service was uh, slow. It was uh, bad. The food wasn't even the same. The hostess was very rude. So, Anyway, you get the idea. Um, we do this stuff from time to time, right? Something really bad happens, a certain circumstance occurs, and we need to respond in a certain way. Uh, recently, my son was uh, coloring on the back of one of our chairs. And uh, my wife's response was somewhere between, stop that! And, what are you doing? It's an understandable response when something like that happens, okay? Well, somewhere between an angry review and looking at children and screaming, stop that, or no, uh, that's what Paul is doing here. Um, he got a report that these young churches were deserting God by abandoning the gospel. And so rather than giving thanks, he starts with, I'm shocked at what you've done. You've turned your back on God. You're turning to another gospel, even though there is no other gospel. Paul's angry. If someone were trying to uh, lure your child away, give them candy, you know, like the cliche, um, you should be rightly angry, right? That's how Paul is feeling about this, uh, these Galatians. He speaks of them like they are his children. 
and he is jealous for their protection. We need to learn this lesson. What he lays out for us here in this text is as relevant for us today as it was then. Because the threat that the Galatian church was facing was not a foreign threat. It was not the the Romans or some other group coming in to force them to worship other gods. Those kinds of of attacks are easy to spot. We can see those coming. This attack came from within. It was subtle. It was like a cancer that started to grow and it led people away from the Lord. And so what we'll see through this text is that the simple gospel shields us from sabotage and sedition. The simple gospel shields us from sabotage and sedition. By holding on to the simple gospel, we are shielded from sabotage because because others won't be able to start uh, coming in and polluting the gospel. We're holding it tight. And that's not what's happening here. And it shields us from sedition, which is another word for treason. We won't turn our backs on God. We will not break our oaths if we are holding on to the simple gospel. So let's break apart our text. In verse 6, we see three things. Paul is amazed that they are quickly deserting. They are deserting him who called in the grace of Christ. That is, they're deserting the Lord. And they are turning to another gospel. Now, this letter was likely written uh, in 48 AD. Okay? And based on what we know of Paul's journeys in the book of Acts, uh, it's believed that he brought the gospel to the southern region of Galatia in either 47 or 48 AD. So it's maybe been a year, but maybe only a few months since he's been there. And these people are already departing for another gospel. He says that we're deserting. You're deserting him. That's actually a military term. It's a term for uh, traitors or turncoats. Those who have broken their oath. When our elected representatives uh, take an oath of office, they promise to defend the Constitution of the United States from all enemies, foreign and domestic, right? Well, again, foreign enemies are very easy to spot. Um, That may be a little different today in our cyber age, but but, but if you saw a plane or a battleship approaching uh, our our borders or our coast, uh, you'd have an idea of of what's going on, right? Uh, It's an invasion, okay? It's a foreign enemy. It's easy to see coming. Domestic enemies are much harder to spot. But failing to protect against domestic enemies is no less treasonous. And so Paul is saying, you have sworn your allegiance now you're committing treason. And specifically against whom? You are committing treason against him who called you in Christ. You're committing, uh, you, you, are, you are now traitors in God's kingdom. That's a scary place to be. How has this happened? Verse 7. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So you're turning to another gospel. Well, guess what? You can't do that. There isn't another gospel. If you don't have Christ, there is no gospel. There is no good news for you. We see two things here. One, there are troublers. And the other is they're distorting the gospel. These troublers were not telling the Galatians about foreign gods. Again, he's not talking about Zeus. He's not talking about Brahma. They were telling the Galatians about Jesus. But it was a distorted understanding of Jesus. And that's much more dangerous. These troublers had come in, they had stirred up doubts in the minds of the Galatians about Paul, which is why Paul starts the letter defending his apostleship. And he's going to go on to to do that some more. And these troublers were saying essentially like, yeah, 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 Paul's great. He's good as far as he goes. But there's more. 
You need to know more. So they start to introduce gospel distortions. We'll see many times throughout the letter that the distortion they're bringing in was they were trying to add Old Testament observance to the law as part of salvation, specifically circumcision. So essentially these people are saying, yeah, 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 we get it. We believe in Jesus. He's the son of God. Okay, this sounds orthodox. He died for sin. Fantastic. But what does it look like to follow him? Well, you have to be circumcised. Trust us. We've been following him for millennia. If you're a new church, you might not know what to do in that situation. There's something to note here. Um, people make theological mistakes all the time. Um, if you are in church long enough, eventually you are going to hear somebody pray and thank God the Father for dying on the cross. But that didn't happen. God the Father did not die on the cross. God the Son died on the cross. So is that a theologically false statement? Yes, it is. Uh, does that mean if you hear somebody pray that, you need to get up and start pronouncing curses at them? No, please don't do that. Uh, theologically false statements out of ignorance are different than preaching a false gospel. Uh, saying something that's theologically wrong is sinful because it declares God to be something other than he is. But we must remember God is gracious. He is a father and he forgives. I have said some very foolish things in my time as a Christian. I have said things about God that I cringe to think about. Even Apollos, who was this great preacher in Acts 18, he's preaching false things. And so Aquila and Priscilla, they take him aside and they correct him. And then he changes his message. So again, there's a difference in doing the wrong thing with an honest heart and doing the wrong thing with a deceiving heart. Doing the wrong thing with an honest heart requires training and repentance. Doing the wrong thing with a deceiving heart is wicked. And these troublers fell into that camp. They were subtly distorting the gospel. And we find out later in the letter that it was to avoid persecution. They didn't want to get persecuted. And they wanted to make a good showing in front of others. So if they could convince these Gentiles to accept the law and get circumcised, the Jews would be very happy with them. So they don't need to get, they, don't, they won't get persecuted. Uh, they have authority now over this new sect. So, you know, that's always a bonus. Um, and, like, what else do you need? I've, I've got authority. Uh, nobody is coming against me. This is fantastic. So, <clears throat> this is why Paul is angry. Because these troublers are doing something wicked within God's church. And the church is believing a false gospel. Notice that in verse 6, Paul says they were deserting him who called in the grace of Christ. Grace is a gift. They were called by grace. That means they did not earn what God gave them. But if these Galatians have to be circumcised to be saved, if they have to obey the law, grace is not what they are receiving. That's called payment for services rendered. So the idea is, well, maybe God came to you in grace. He took pity on you, perhaps. But now it's up to you, Galatians. You've got to obey. You see what a distortion of the gospel that is. That's saying that God was gracious to you at one point, but now he's changed. He's different. It's no longer grace. It is payment for your right work. That would be like a man who adopts a couple of children. Everything looks fantastic on his references. His home study is perfect. He's great showing uh, when he meets them and everything. And these kids think they are going to get just the best dad in the world. And it turns out they got an imposter. That's why Paul is making such a big deal out of this. Even slight distortions to the simple gospel pave the way for saboteurs to come in and for us to commit seditious acts. The gospel is only the gospel in its pure form. 
Anything else is like hiding a woman's engagement ring in a mound of fertilizer, handing her a shovel and saying, won't this be fun? Perhaps it would be like taking her uh, white wedding dress, putting it underneath a mound of oozing trash and saying, see how much better I made it? Trying to add to the gospel is only guaranteed to ruin it. And now Paul gets serious. Verse 8. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Notice what Paul is doing here. He's pronouncing a curse, a, a judgment. And who is he pronouncing it on? He says if we, okay, so any man, myself included, if, if any one person is preaching to you a gospel other than what you've received, let that person be accursed. But that's not all he says. Paul says, even if it's an angel, let him be accursed too. Paul is willing to judge heaven. Have you thought about that? That's crazy. He's willing to make pronouncements in heaven itself in order to see heaven stay true to the gospel that was once delivered. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul tells the Corinthians that they actually need to become better at judging. It's kind of a weird thing to think about. He says, y'all need to be better judges. We're told often that we shouldn't be judging, but Paul is saying you'll need to get better at it. You need to know how to judge your trivial cases and not go to the secular courts. And then he tells them why. He says, don't you know that we are to judge angels? It's like, well, actually, no, Paul, I didn't know that. Thank you for telling me, but no, I did not know that. But that's what he's doing here. He's making a pronouncement concerning the angels. This is actually another theme that we're going to see throughout Galatians um, we're going to see this theme of growing up uh, as God's children. And when we do that, we are given a place of authority. Paul is exercising that kind of authority that we are meant to grow up into. Now, that is not to say uh, that uh, one day you will sit on some uh, white cloud with an angel fanning you with a palm branch and another one sent to fetch you a grape. That's not what I mean. Uh, but it is to say that God made us lower than the angels for a time. But one day we will be given a seat with Jesus on his throne, which is above the angels. One of my brother's good friends died when he was in high school. And at the funeral, um, his coach got up to speak about him. And he said that this boy who had died, he was now an angel in heaven. And afterward, the pastor uh, got up and he corrected this theologically false statement. Though it was made with a good heart, he corrected it. And he told the congregation, this boy's not an angel. This boy has been given a seat higher than the angels. Angel would be a demotion. Why is that? Well, because not all angels are good. There are fallen angels, and they will also face judgment. But if we are in Christ, if we have come to believe in the simple gospel, we have already faced judgment. God is in the process of shaping us, not into the image of an angel, into the image of a son. And to the image of his son, the Lord Jesus, so that we can also be given a place to sit and reign with the Lord Jesus. Again, this is why uh, Paul is very serious here. This is a massive distortion. He's not being hyperbolic. So, if you know anything about Mormonism, they believe their uh, cult started by an angel coming to appear to Joseph Smith. Uh, did that actually happen? I don't know. Does it matter? No. No. It, it means that that there's just another angel uh, who's awaiting God's judgment. But it doesn't change the gospel. Going on, verse 9. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Now, Paul is not just repeating himself here. 
his verb tense actually changes. He goes from verse 8 speaking in the subjunctive mood, a hypothetical mood. If this should happen, if anyone should come and do this, here's what you should do. And now he goes into verse 9 speaking in the indicative mood. If anyone is doing this, here's what you need to do. You need to let that person be accursed. Consider that person anathema. In other words, let that person be damned. So what should we do with all this? It's very easy for us to use these verses to throw shade. You get to throw shade at those outside the church, especially those who talk about Jesus. Again, like the Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses. We can look at them and say, oh, you all are so crazy. You believe all sorts of foolish things. And to be clear, uh, the stuff they believe is wrong. Jehovah's Witnesses deny the Trinity and the deity of Christ and the resurrection. Mormons deny the deity of Christ. They believe he is the spirit child of God who may or may not actually be Adam and Satan is his brother. Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism again, says that the angel Moroni came to him to deliver to him another New Testament, a newer testament of Jesus Christ. And if that's so, that angel forgot to read Galatians. Those who are false gospel, or th th those uh, those. The Mormonism, uh, anything that denies Christ, right? It's a false gospel. Um, and so if an angel really came to Joseph Smith, that angel really will face God's curse. But we are not in danger of a Mormon takeover, right? I'm glad that we know that those things are false. But what are the things that hit us like the Galatians? Where do we need to be watching out for spies and saboteurs, those who would seek to lead us astray? There are all sorts of false gospels out there that we need to be aware of. And if we find them in the church, we need to either uh, put them down with the sort of truth, with God's word, or we need to remove someone, which we've ha had to do. Uh, when people have brought in false teaching and have not repented of it, we've had to remove them. It's not a fun process. But here's the thing. That's hard, right? Freedom's hard. Sticking to the simple gospel is hard. Because we all have the tendency to start adding. We are very ready to make obedience to Jesus contingent on adherence to a law. You know, if you don't agree with me on this or that, well, you must not understand the gospel. You must not be a real Christian. I have had people tell me, you cannot be a Christian and not be a Republican. It's kind of a bummer for everybody who doesn't live in America. I've had people tell me that real Christians are Democrats. Both of those are false. The church should never be hitched to a political party. That is exactly what it looks like to allow saboteurs in. Because when the party shifts, the gospel has to shift. Your understanding of the gospel should determine how you engage politically. But your politics should never shape your understanding of the gospel. Similarly, our modern age has a gospel of self. We love this. Believe in yourself. You can be anything. You can do anything. We are all about self-care and self-improvement. And the lie here isn't that you don't need care or that you don't need to improve or that you couldn't be something or do something. Maybe you could. The lie comes in when we start looking to ourselves for these things. I can improve myself by looking deep within me. I need to get in touch with the real me. And then you become your own functional savior. It's a false gospel. But that gospel is very much within the church. 
When someone says, you do you, right? That's another way of saying there's nothing wrong. Nothing wrong with you at all. Nothing needs to change. All I need to do is be, be me, and no one should have a problem with that. But that's not what the gospel tells us. The gospel doesn't tell us that we need to dig deep and to find our one true self. The gospel tells us we need a redeemed self. And we get that by dying with Jesus. Jesus says, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. By putting our trust in Jesus, our old self dies. It was put to death with him on the cross. And when that happens, God gives new life. And we discover life the way God designed. We are in the remains of a traditional culture. There is a gospel of tradition. And if you break tradition, what will your family say? When I became a believer in Jesus, my grandfather gave me the gospel of tradition talk. It was Judaism was good enough for your father and grandfather and for our generations before. I don't know why it's not good enough for you. And not wanting to violate the gospel of tradi tradition and reject my elders, the thing that you are wanting to say in that instance, you, you're wanting to cave. You either want to say, no, no, that's not it. Or, oh, but it is good enough. But we have to think like Christians. In truth, Judaism wasn't good enough for my ancestors either. Because no one is saved by works of the law. Salvation is by grace alone. What about this? The gospel of justice. No Christian would dare say, we believe in a gospel of injustice. But justice according to whose definition? There's so much talk about justice over the last year, and many Christians have bought into the culture's view of justice. The gospel of justice has actually very little to do with biblical justice. It has much more to do with feelings, much more to do with you doing good things, and it's often to the exclusion of preaching the true gospel. But guess what? If you're doing those so-called good things in any other name than in the name of Jesus, they're not good. Jesus is the only one who is good and who makes us good. How about the gospel of morality? Be a good person. But again, good by whose standard? How many good things do you have to do? The gospel of morality is just another way of importing the law. What about the gospel of niceness? We know all about that. That's why Paul is offensive to us. That's why nobody is willing to talk like Paul. We're not even willing to talk like Jesus. Because it offends. It is not nice. Now this is where it gets challenging for us. Because can you imagine Paul pronouncing curses on people for being Jews? Would he pronounce curses on people for valuing justice or morality or tradition or niceness? No. I'm not going to curse them for that. Paul loved those things. Paul loved his fellow Jews. He loved their tradition. He loved God's justice. He sought to live morally. But none of those things are the gospel. There are so many good things, but the moment we add them to the gospel, we distort it and create a gospel that is no gospel at all because it cannot save. Last week, Chris said that nothing has changed since Galatians was written. And he said that with respect to verse 4. In verse 4, we learn that Christ saved us from sin by delivering us from the present evil age. He says nothing has changed since then. Still in that age. But in a different sense, there is something uh, that changed. 
about 20 years after this letter was written, the Jewish temple was destroyed. Now, why do I bring that up? Because at the time of the letter, the temple stood. So if you've got somebody coming to you saying, go obey the law, you actually have a place where you could go do that, theoretically. Now, the law is not capable of actually cleansing the heart, so they couldn't do it uh, in truth. But nonetheless, they at least had a place they could go and try. Right? That's not true anymore. So Paul is saying, you can't go back there. That, that, uh, that ended, that opportunity ended 2,000 years ago. Trying to import the law today is a pipe dream. You can't do it. There's no place to go to fulfill it. Because there's no other sacrifice for sin but Christ. The church is God's new temple. And false gospels are not welcome in it. But we have welcomed many. That is why the mainline churches have all but died. They have abandoned God's word, which resulted in abandoning the gospel. And now they are social clubs. They are places that people go to try and feel good or to find uh, inspiration or perhaps they like tradition. But as we've already said, none of that can save. Only the simple gospel saves. Only the simple gospel shields us from enemies, foreign and domestic. From those seeking to sabotage what we have in Christ and introduce distortions into it. Only the simple gospel shields us from sedition, from turning our back on God. One other gospel that we started to uh, touch on was the gospel of government. That the government will save us and the left and the right make this mistake. If we introduce a gospel of government that is a political gospel, contrary to the true political nature of of the gospel, okay? The politics of the gospel are this. Jesus is king, bow down. That's the politics of the gospel. But if we start introducing, excuse me, uh, an earthly understanding of politics into the gospel, we, we adopt that kind of gospel of government, we've lost everything. We will be guilty of turning our backs on God. This last year, churches learned a very important lesson. We learned that Jesus is Lord over the church, and the state is not. Now, that may sound like a simple lesson, but it is one that we, along with a lot of other churches, had to be woken up to the reality of. This is Christ's church. So all this talk about the simple gospel, what is it? The gospel is this. Jesus is Lord. God the Son came to us, his wayward people, his creation that had gone astray. We were already traitors, and God came to us. He lived as we were meant to. His life was in perfect obedience to God the Father. And though he was king by right over absolutely everything, he served, he humbled himself, and was obedient to the point of death. We killed him. We tortured and crucified him. But notice back in verse 4, it says this, Jesus gave himself for our sins. He gave. No one took his life from him. He gave it. In your discipleship group guides this last week, if you had a chance to go through those, there was a quote from Matthew chapter 27, where Jesus was at the moment of death and it said, in that moment, he yielded up his spirit. No one could take it from him. He did it. No one took Jesus' life from him. He gave it for you. You were the traitor. 
who deserved death. And the king died in your place. And after he died and was buried, guess what? Death couldn't hold him. It couldn't keep the God of life back. Death is the penalty for sin, but Jesus had no sin. That's why when he died, he, he took our sins down into death, that, down into the grave. And he dropped them off like getting home after a long trip. You drop your luggage off right at the door. That's what Jesus did. He went down into death, dropped the luggage off, and God lifted it back out of the pit. Your sin has died in the death of Christ. And you are free from it. You are free from its curse. And what does God do for everyone whose sin has been paid for? He does not make them pay again. God purchased the salvation of the world in the death of Christ. And when God raised him up, he was making a promise. A promise that everyone who dies in Jesus, who dies following Jesus, will be raised like Jesus. If your sin has been dealt with, nothing keeps you apart from God. And when your body dies, your soul will rise to heaven where you will wait in bliss. Until the time that God has appointed for Jesus to return to earth... And when he does, he will come and he will call all those who died waiting for his coming. And then death won't be able to keep you back anymore either. Your body will get right back up out of the grave too. And you will be raised flesh and blood. And from that time on, there will be no decay, no more death, no more sin. The simple gospel is Jesus is Lord. God sent him. He lived for all his people. He was sacrificed for them. And now he lives and reigns forever. The invitation of the gospel is that you can be united to the king who lives and reigns forever. Or you can seek to build a kingdom in opposition to him. But that's a really scary place to be. One leads to life and peace. And the other leads to hell and destruction. There are two last Gospels that we need to talk about. And for the most part, we all tend to fall into one of them. Two other false Gospels. For whatever reason, we get into this habit or this state of mind that says the Gospel isn't sufficient. And we think we need to help God in some way. And so we have this Gospel of exclusivity and the Gospel of inclusivity. The gospel of exclusivity says that certain people can't come in. We don't like them. We don't want them. It is a wicked belief. But, if we're honest, there are probably people that we don't want to see come to life in Jesus. I saw a story the other day of a mom on the news. She was weeping because her daughter had been killed. And the news interviewer uh, asking her how she was doing and her response just blew me away she said we have to pray we have to pray for the person who did this that God would bless them we have to pray for their sin because I live in peace I've not heard a statement like that that is a God-fearing woman who has learned how to love her enemies if you've ever heard the story of Corrie ten Boom she was a Dutch woman who helped smuggle Jews to safety in World War II. And eventually she ended up in a concentration camp because somebody had ratted on her family. And after that, her father died in prison and her sister died in the camp that she was at. 
And after the war was over, the man who ratted on her family came and asked her for her forgiveness. Can you imagine that? Your father's dead. Your sister's dead. You've spent years in unimaginable pain and suffering, and I want you to forgive me. Well, if that wasn't hard enough, she tells another story of one of the most cruel guards at the camp that she was at. And he found her some years later and said, I've become a Christian, and I want to ask for your forgiveness. She had a chance to forgive a real-life legitimate Nazi. And when he came to her, through her internal pain, she took his hand and she called him brother. She said, if Christ can forgive me, how can I not forgive you? We find ourselves favoring this gospel because we believe God's gospel is too easy. We don't like it. People should have to prove something. We don't want to forgive wicked people like that. But that's not grace. And it's not love. If your love for your children is based on them proving their love for you, you need to beware of what you're teaching them. If your love for your spouse is based on how they've loved you, you have not understood grace yet. God loved you when you were a sinner. And his love made you lovely. The gospel of exclusivity is a gospel of judgment and fear. We don't want the bad people's cooties on us. Or talking to them is just too hard. Don't know what to say. Learning to love your enemies is hard. But it will make you like Jesus. You may end up in some weird situations. Right? Jesus hung out with tax collectors and sinners. And eventually he ended up on a cross. But even on the cross, he was free. Again, the Romans could not take his life. The Jews could not take his life. He gave it to them. Jesus entered death a free man, and he came out a king. On the other hand, the gospel of inclusivity says, oh, well, just accept people as they are. They don't need to change. They don't need to repent. Just accept them. Here's a question I've already asked a couple of times in this message, and I want to get you used to asking this question. The question is, by what standard? By what standard are we to accept people? Oh, well, it's just a loving thing to do, right? Well, it's true that we are to love people. But when Jesus says, love your enemies, he doesn't mean pretend that they're not enemies. Right? That's, again, how he welcomes saboteurs in. You have to know who your enemies are. You have to know what it looks like to love them. Those who walk as enemies of Christ, what does it look like to love them? It looks like warning them. It looks like preaching the gospel to them. It looks like forgiving them if they repent. Our enemies will suffer God's wrath, either in Christ or apart from him. If they come to Christ, their curse will have fallen on Jesus. He will have taken the wrath that they deserved. If they suffer his wrath outside of Christ, they will pay. And what they owe will take an eternity to pay off. The gospel of inclusivity says, we want to get people into the kingdom by whatever means possible. But as Christians, we must say there are no other means. Jesus is the way. Our aim is not to keep people out. The gospel is indeed for everyone. But a gospel that isn't a gospel of Christ is no gospel. So we want to see Jews and Mormons and Muslims come in. We want to see people from every nation. 
We want to see people set free from every sin, and it might be uncomfortable. We want to see all people included in the kingdom. That's why we believe in evangelism. We believe in calling outsiders in. We want to see a world full of Christians. But we cannot, cannot, must not bend or alter or distort the gospel to see that happen. If we bend or alter or distort the gospel, all we have done is destroy the gospel. We want to see people come in, but they still have to come through the door. And Jesus said, I am the door. Jesus said, the gate is narrow that leads to life. And so if you, if you start hearing people preach about a broader way, an easier way, remember what Jesus said, broad is the way that leads to destruction. If you have adopted a gospel that is Jesus plus, Jesus plus anything, you need to drop it. You're trying to add to that narrow gate and all you're going to do is head to the broad gate. Jesus plus a certain lifestyle. Jesus plus a spouse. Jesus plus ease. Jesus without any hardship. If that's your understanding of the gospel, you must turn around. You are putting on the garb of the other team and you need to let it go and to be reminded of the true gospel. There is a path to freedom. Every other path is going to enslave you, but there is freedom. And freedom comes by faith in Jesus Christ. You might have a lot of faith. You might have a little bit of faith. It's not the point. The point is, what do you have your faith in? What are you trusting? When you trust Jesus, when you believe the simple gospel, you are shielded. You can rest secure knowing that God did for you what you could not do, and he did it by grace. You are shielded from breaking your oath, from going astray, because he is the one that's keeping you. When you see Jesus rightly, you understand that it is not you holding on to him. He has held on to you. He claimed you on the cross. And everything that you've gone through to bring you to him has been for a purpose. If you've come to understand the gospel, you have understood that God rescued you. He took you on a journey because he wanted to rescue you. He wanted to show you himself and he continues to protect you now. Your job is simply to trust him. Chris said last week, God pours out his grace on us and he gets the glory. Your job is to receive the grace. When you receive God's grace and rest in a world of panic, God gets the glory. When you receive the grace of God's forgiveness after you sin and you can acknowledge your guilt and apologize without trying to save face, God gets the glory. When you are honest in your job, even if you make a mistake, God gets the glory. When you ask God for his grace to help you parent your little ones who drive you nuts, God gets the glory. When you give thanks for the grace that he's shown you, he gets the glory. When you pray for grace in a situation or you pray for somebody to get better who's sick, God gets the glory. When you forgive sin committed against you, when you pour out grace, God gets the glory. When you trust God, when the simple gospel is all you have, you are set free and God gets the glory. Jesus suffered the curse, the anathema that you deserved because you had deserted God. But in his grace, he came for you and now he is your shield. I'll close with this from Psalm 28. Blessed be the Lord. For he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts and I am helped. My heart exults 
And with my song I give thanks to him. The Lord is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. Oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. Let's pray. Our Father, you are indeed our shield and our strength. You are our shepherd and you will carry us forever. Thank you for the grace that you've shown to us in Jesus. And we ask for your grace now to help us trust you in everything. We pray this in the name of Jesus and for his glory. Amen.